Um, we're going to uh, we're going to continue on in uh, our series in Philippians. So for those of you who have been around church for a while, uh, this may be familiar. But for the next part of our service, we're going to spend some time specifically uh, in a, a portion of Philippians. Um, we have been looking at this New Testament letter for uh, a few months now. Uh, and we've been seeking to see and seeking to hear what, what God may be saying to us through his word. And, and we do believe that God speaks to us through his word. Uh, yes, Philippians was a letter written in the second half of the first century by a guy called Paul who was under house arrest in Rome. He wrote it to a church which he had helped to establish in a place called Philippi, about 800 miles away from Rome. And so we might look at this and think, well, what, what, has this, what relevance could this have for us? But as, as Christians, we wholeheartedly believe that the Bible, written by human hands, yes, but human hands, inspired by God, Therefore, these words are not just human words. These are God-inspired words. And therefore, we believe they still have relevance for us. They still have truth for us. And because these are divinely inspired, God-inspired words, then this is, this is what we should be uh, basing our whole life upon, certainly our understanding of who God is and how he wants us to live as his followers. Um, and so that's why we're going to look at this, this book again today. So Philippians is a New Testament letter. It's quite short. Um, but it is a wonderful, punchy, strong letter. Andy, let me switch to this. Mate. And so it is, a, it is a joy to look through this, this uh, book. And joy is one of the key things that comes through this book. We've just been singing about it, but it is one of the things that keeps repeating itself in this instructional letter to the Philippian church. But it's not just joy like a, a happy, clappy, uh, sing a fun song with the kids kind of joy. It is a deep and lasting and enduring joy. And that's why we have entitled our sermon series, Deep Roots of a Joyful Faith. Because what Philippians and God through the book of Philippians is showing us is that if we are to have a, a, a depth of faith grounded on him and on his truth that will flow that will flow into our lives and out from our lives as joyful faith which means that whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in we can know true and lasting joy because the source of our joy is jesus not the circumstances we find ourselves in and so that is what we can have deep roots into it is deep roots into him which leads to a joyful faith and, and that may sound a bit, a bit flippant to say, yeah, whatever your circumstances, you can do joy. Remember, Paul is writing this essentially from prison. He's writing it to a group of Christians who were about to be fairly heavily persecuted for their faith. And so this was not a lightness. This is not a, an easy thing to hear. But that's the reality that when our, when our roots go deep into Jesus, then whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can know joy because our joy isn't based on the circumstantial changes around us. No, it is based on, on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the eternal hope that he has won for us. And so Philippians is a rich book. And as I said, we've been, we've been uh, journeying through it uh, very slowly as a church family since about September time. We now are going to finish chapter two today. Uh, and so if you want to turn to Philippians chapter two, if you are looking at the red Bibles around on chairs, it's on page 1179. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you so that you have a copy of God's word. We'd love you to have that. Um, but as in 2023, I'm sure if you've been around here for a few weeks, we haven't quite got into the rhythm of Philippians yet. And so can I just take a few moments and, and, and survey a little bit about what we've seen so far and therefore where we pick this, where we pick this letter up in verse 19 of chapter 2. 
Because in verse 19 of chapter 2, we are still continuing on in a, in, a, in a flow of thought, if you like, that the Apostle Paul really started back in chapter 1, verse 27. In one twenty-seven, we read, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so essentially, Paul has explained through this book already that to believe in Jesus is, of course, vital for life. And then that affects how you live. And to not let it affect how you live would actually be to not fully understand what the gospel is and what it means for us. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of it. And then he's been unpacking what that means. What does it mean to live a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? And Paul went on to explain how Christians can therefore endure suffering that comes for their faith as they stand together as a community. And then we unpack, he unpacked for us a, a little bit about what, and what it is that unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is not a shared interest. It is, it is more than socioeconomic uh, similarity. No, it is, it is a depth of unity that we enjoy because we are in Christ. Um, and so that, that is what brings uh, a unity to, to churches or certainly should bring a unity to churches because we have all received the same incredible gift of Jesus, that Jesus was the one who humbly gave himself and that's what unifies all of us. Uh, there is no sense of hierarchy. There is no sense of you're more important than I am. No, we, we share one another's interests and we lay our burdens before one another. We are united by him and, and a sacrificial service of one another that that brings. Uh, and Paul then, moving on through chapter 2, we get to uh, what, what some consider to be the, the first Christian hymn that Paul writes from verse 6 uh, through to verse 11, where he celebrates the humility of Jesus Christ. The reality that Jesus, God's very son, uh, would, would leave the glory of heaven, seek to serve the world that he created by taking the penalty of sin upon himself. Uh, and he did that by dying on the cross. Yet that wasn't the end of the story because Paul goes on to explain and the whole Bible goes on to explain that, that of course then Jesus rose from the dead. He's now exalted on high with all power, with all authority. You see that from verse 6 through to verse 11. And so because of who Jesus is, then the call for us is to live a life worthy of that good news. If we receive that good news, if we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, if we trust in him and the salvation that he won for us, if we know his forgiveness and his grace, then he becomes Lord of our life. He takes control. And so understanding the good news of Jesus, it sets the direction of our lives and it controls the affections of our hearts. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what, is, what he's done for us, it sets the direction of our lives and it controls the affection of our hearts. In, in other words, because God has done all that is needed to save us, we give our all back to him in surrender and in thanks. And of course, it's a process. Philippians talks us through that. In, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 6, we see that, that, God, uh, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion. So once we become a Christian, once we, once we surrender to Jesus, we are not then, then perfect in how we live our lives. We still make mistakes. Of course we do. But the Bible consistently talks about this process that it calls sanctification. In other words, becoming more like Jesus. So as we surrender to Jesus, then our lives should take on something of his nature, of his characteristics. Uh, our lives should become more like the life that Christ lived. We follow his example and we seek to do that more and more. And, and just in case that sounds all very theoretical, Paul then showed us what that looks like on the ground. So by the time we get to verse 14, we see, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So if you want to know what the life of a Christian should look like, it should be void of grumbling and arguing. Now, 
that that is idealistic. All of us in the room know that it's easy to grumble, it's easy to argue, but if we're seeking to faithfully follow Jesus, the command is that we shouldn't. And the reason why we don't is because we know and understand the love that God has for us and we seek to show and share that love with everyone around us who we meet. And so because of all of those things, because of this growing in sanctification, then the Christian should be distinctive in the world. The second half of verse 14, or verse 15, sorry, shows this. Verse 15 and 16. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Christians should be distinctive and noticeable in the world. Not because, not because of necessarily the things they do, but because of why they do the things they do. Because everything they do should point back to the love that they know of Jesus. And so as God continues to work in the lives of those who believe and follow Jesus, then we should become more and more like him and that transforms our life. And that is good news. And so all of this combines and all of this has been an unpacking of what it means to have deep roots of a joyful faith. We know what we believe and that belief determines our behavior and that behavior is joyful Remember I said not necessarily happy, clappy all the time, but a consistent contentment as we'll come to see in later chapters of Philippians. A deep roots of a joyful faith. And so with, with all of that as some way of background, we're going to jump into and pick it up in verse 19. And we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Um, so verse 19 through to verse 30 of Philippians chapter 2. So do you join with me in the reading of God's word. This is the Apostle Paul continuing to write on. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come to you soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs with all of you and is distressed because, he heard, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. And so we pray God's blessing upon his word as we turn to it now with our heads and our hearts. And so here we have two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, and, and in some ways we may think, okay, well, this is a little personal segue here for Paul. This maybe doesn't have a lot to teach us as we read it today. But remember what I said at the start? We believe this is God's word. And actually, I think if we dig a little deeper into this passage, we see that these two men show us great examples of what it means to live out this kind of humble faith that Paul has been talking about all chapters so far. And so that's what we're going to see. As we look a little bit closer at Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're going to see humble faith lived out. And to help us through the rest of, that time, rest of our time this morning, we're going to see how this humble faith was lived out in two main ways by both of these guys. It was lived out in a love for people and lived out in work for the gospel. 
humble faith lived out in love for people and work for the gospel. And we see both of those things in Timothy and Epaphroditus. But let's have a look at a little bit more about what we are told about these two. Well, firstly, from the, from the New Testament as a whole, we know much more about Timothy than we do about Epaphroditus. Um, which some of us might be grateful of so that we don't have to say his name too often. But Epaphroditus is there and is an important character, as we'll see in a minute. But from the rest of the New Testament, we know the Timothy. We know an awful lot more about him. In fact, even from the very first verse of this letter, we see that Timothy is actually one of the senders of this letter with Paul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, And so we know that, that Timothy is with Paul, therefore, in Rome. He's with Paul sending this letter to the Philippian church. And that should be no surprise to us. If we read the rest of the New Testament, particularly through the book of Acts, We see that Timothy um, journeyed with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. In fact, one of the places that Timothy visits in Acts 16 is Philippi. Timothy is there with Paul when Paul is there to, to bring the gospel to Philippi and therefore see the start of this church in the first place. And now he's still with Paul writing this letter back to encourage the church there. And we see him throughout Acts, as I say. We see him in some of other of Paul's letters. He, he's mentioned in 2 Corinthians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians. But Timothy is also a recipient of two of Paul's letters. So a little bit further on in your Bibles, you'll see that Timothy, First and Second Timothy, are letters from Paul to Timothy. Timothy, at that stage, been sent to Ephesus to help lead the church there. And, Tim, and Paul writes these letters to him to remind him of what truth is, to remind him about the gospel, and to encourage him in his service. And so through all of that, we know a lot more about Timothy. And that is good, and what we should know is important. But that doesn't mean that what we know about Epaphroditus is less important. So his name only appears twice in scripture, and they're both in this letter, once here, as we've read, and again in chapter 4. But his role is incredibly important, and actually the lessons that we can learn from his example are equally important. So what do we know about him? Well, we know that he's actually from Philippi. He was a member of the church there before being sent to Rome to bring Paul gifts and to support Paul in his time in Rome. Uh, And while he was in Rome, he didn't just sit on the sidelines. How did Paul describe him? He is his co-worker, his brother, his fellow soldier. Epaphroditus worked hard for the gospel when he's there, and we'll think about that in a minute. But while he was there, one of the reasons why Epaphroditus came to Rome was to care for Paul, to take care of his needs, we're told. Um, But now Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi because he'd been close to death. Uh, we're not told what that was. We're not even told when that was. But for so, in some capacity, Epaphroditus almost died in working for the gospel. And as we see, then the church in Philippi heard, goodness, Epaphroditus is really sick. They got really worried. Epaphroditus got better. Then he heard that the people back home were worried about him. He got so distressed about their anxiety that he wanted to go back. And so you can see this circle. But essentially, what it shows us is that Epaphroditus was incredibly important to the people in Philippi. And he's been incredibly important to Paul as he's been with him in Rome. So, so there are differences between these two, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But what I want us to focus on for the remainder of our time is what they share. Uh, what, what they share in their example. And we've th- seen those already. That they, love for, they have a love for people and they work for the gospel. So let me briefly unpack each of those in turn. In, in verse 20, if we think about Timothy first. In verse 20, we're told, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. This is Paul talking about Timothy, and he says, I have no one else like him. Uh, The original Greek of that actually helps us to unpack a little bit. Essentially, Paul is saying, no one else has the same mind for you as I have, except Timothy. 
Timothy has the same, it's that phrase, like-minded, or to be of the same mind. It actually takes us back into chapter 2, verse 3, uh, talking about like-mindedness and having one mind. It's a similar theme, not quite the same verb, but it's a similar theme. Essentially, Paul is saying, I love the church in Philippi. We know that, as we'll see in a minute from what he's already said. And then he said, there's no one else who shares the mind that I have for you, Philippian church, than Timothy. He has a deep love for you. That's why he's able to say he has a genuine, he will show genuine concern for your welfare. See, we know that Paul loves this church because back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he said, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's Paul's heart and mind for the Philippian church. And he's saying there's no one else like me other than Timothy who shares that mind and heart too. And so he will come and show genuine concern for your welfare. Essentially, Paul is saying that, that Timothy will be, will be burdened for you. He will deeply care for you. And he will give careful thought to everything that you need. In verse 21, Paul says, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ's. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Again, Paul is showing here, Timothy is different than most others. Timothy is not like that. He's not looking out for only his own interests. Back when Paul was teaching us about humility in verse 4, he said, don't look out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And now he's saying, Timothy is that kind of guy. Timothy embodies that. He looks out for everyone else's interests. That's why Timothy's visit to the Philippian church is going to be good for them. It's going to be an encouragement to them. It's going to bring joy because Timothy is a man who deeply loves them and who will genuinely care for, his, for their concerns. It'd be lovely to have people like that in church, wouldn't it? Now, I can say that slightly tongue-in-cheek because we have people like that here in church who deeply love others. We genuinely look out for other people's interests. And the encouragement here is, let's all be that for each other. Epaphroditus was clearly another man who had deep love for God's people. For a start, he's chosen from the Philippian church to be the one to come and stay with Paul. Uh, this journey, as I mentioned earlier, is about 800 miles. And he's coming to bring supplies and provision. But he's also coming to warm Paul's heart. He's also coming to support him. And, and, and the Philippian church clearly loved Paul to be able to make that sacrifice, to send the supplies and the money and whatever Paul might need to survive in Rome. And the person that they choose to embody that love and support was Epaphroditus. And the impact that Epaphroditus has that is incredible. He's, he, Paul calls him my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. He's very actively involved. And as I said, he's there to, to serve Paul. He's there to minister to my need as the ESV renders verse 25. See, Epaphroditus serves Paul. He brings deep care, deep attention to Paul. He's demonstrating love and care. And, and we also see in Paul and how Paul speaks about Epaphroditus, his continued love for the church back home. We've talked about that already. Epaphroditus is longing to go back. He's distressed. He wants to go back because the folks in Philippi have heard that he was ill. And so there's a deep longing shared between all of them. It must have been an incredible part, an incredible community of faith to be a part of. And we, as Jesus' followers today, have exactly the same privilege to be part of that kind of community, who love each other deeply, who are distressed when someone else is in trouble. That is a joyful thing to be part of a community like that. And so there's humble, loving service that's taking place in this community. And that is what uh, we are to embody as we continue to seek to follow Jesus here.
So, so Epaphroditus and Timothy, two men who visibly demonstrate a love for people. And that's part of what it means to live out a humble faith. That, that, we lo- that there is a deep love for people. And perhaps in this example, we see a great encouragement. And we see, goodness, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are a wonderful gift to the church in the first century. And we have many among us who are just as good a gift and just as wonderful a gift to us as a church here. And so there's great encouragement there to continue, to strive for unity, to love one another well, to serve one another, to be humbly committed to each other. And and perhaps alongside that encouragement is a sense of challenge to look within our own selves and think, is, is, that, is that me? Do I display that love for, for my brothers and sisters in the faith? Do I display that love for my neighbor? And so perhaps we are challenged as equally as I hope and I pray you're encouraged to. So humble faith lived out is demonstrated by a love for people. And the second thing that Timothy and Epaphroditus show for us is a work for the gospel. We see this in Timothy in, in, in verse 22. Uh, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And then in verse 30, we see Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. And so these are not, these are not kind of uh, run of the mill phrases. This is not a, a glossing over. No, Timothy served with Paul in the work of the gospel and Epaphroditus risked his life essentially what what we can read into these are are Timothy and Epaphroditus were wholeheartedly devoted to the good news of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And they work to share and to show that good news everywhere they go. And they work hard. They serve and they risk. They are wholeheartedly devoted to it. And so as much as we we, we read of these these individuals like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul, and, and we we, we admire them in a godly way for their passion for the gospel. They, they, they are not some sort of, let me put it this way, we should, we should be those kinds of people. They, they, they are not some kind of special case where, where, they are, um, where they are more spiritual than others. No, we as followers of Jesus should be as passionate for the gospel as they were. Now, of course, the Lord blessed their ministry wonderfully, led them and guided them through the first century. The church was in a very different place as it was then, breaking into first century Rome. I understand all of that context. But rather than look at this and think, oh, yeah, well, that's okay for Timothy and Epaphroditus. But for me, I don't need to be quite so risky. I don't need to serve to work the gospel. No, I believe the Lord would say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. That we follow wholeheartedly with full devotion, with passion, because we know who he is. As Paul said to Timothy later, I know whom I have believed and therefore that motivated his whole life. And so to be wholeheartedly devoted to the gospel, to to, to make known that good news wherever and whenever we can, that's the life that's held up to us as an example here, an example to be followed. And that is a challenge to many of us. But one of the ways I think that we can understand that life is to get a deeper grasp of the goodness of the good news of the gospel because if we fully understand the wonder of who jesus is and what he's done then of course we will want to serve him more wholeheartedly and to understand what the gospel is here's just one example of how paul explains it in the next letter over in colossians chapter 2 when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the cross is foolishness. It seems like that from our perspective at times especially for when we don't believe it yet. This seems like craziness to me. How can the cross be good news? Well, the cross is good news because on the cross, Jesus took the penalty of sin, my sin and yours, so that I don't have to pay it. He took it. He didn't have any sin. He didn't need to die on the cross to, 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 fulfill, to sacrifice, make a sacrifice for his own sin. No, but because of his love for his people, he chose to go to the cross so that we would know forgiveness. That sin that, that keeps us from God that, that, that puts us under his judgment. No, Jesus took it on himself. That's why he died. But of course, as we were reminded from that wonderful song in Philippians 2, he rose from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, fully satisfying the, the wrath of God that is justly poured out on sin. And what that means is for those who trust in Jesus, for those who see him on the cross in their place, graciously, willingly giving himself so that we might know forgiveness. For those who trust in him as our Savior and our Lord, as I mentioned earlier, turning from our life of sin to a life of Christ, then we are forgiven. We're freed from that sin. We are welcomed into life in all its fullness now. We're welcomed and secured a place in all eternity with him. This is why the gospel is good. And so, when we grasp the goodness of the good news, then working for the gospel is, of course, what we want to do. We want to make other people aware of this wonderful good news. We want to show it and to share it with all that we can. And that means that we, we follow Jesus faithfully, that we obediently, wholeheartedly devote ourselves to him. In other words, we love God, yes, and we love other people, yes. And isn't that how, how Jesus summed up the whole of the law and the prophets when he was questioned about that in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all you have. Wholehearted, devoted, passionate, sacrificial love for God. And as we've seen time and time again through Philippians and indeed through all of Scripture, loving God with all is, of course, the response because of the enormity of what Jesus has done for us. He gave his all, so, so of course we give him ours. And that, that love that we have for God then spills out into the way that we live our whole lives. In other words, our love for God prompts our love for others. And yes, that means a love for our brothers and sisters in the faith, of, as we've thought about this morning. And so maybe there's a challenge here is how are we showing love to one another? How are you showing love to the people? If this is your home church, how are you showing love to the people you're sitting around? How are you showing love to those who, who long to be physically with us but can't be? How do we demonstrate that love for one another? And remember, love is not just an emotion that we feel. It is an action that we display. So be encouraged. Love one another. And then wider than that, how do we show God's love to our neighbors, to those we work with, live with, live around, socialize with? 
Do, do they look at our lives and see our love for God? Maybe that's in, in simple acts, like this week, maybe you've been out salting driveways or clearing some ice. It's a demonstration of love for, love for people. Maybe it's getting shopping for an elderly neighbor who, who finds it difficult to leave the house. Maybe it's, it's cooking an extra batch when you're doing it and sticking it in the freezer in the back room so that we're well stocked to then give to people who might just need a break. And surely the most loving thing we can do is then to share the message of love of Jesus Christ, to share the good news with them. Not just show it with our lives, but also share it in our words to help them see the gospel, to help them see the hope and the life and the eternity that Jesus has for those who come to believe in. That is our work for the gospel. It is good news. And so I pray that God would help us be a community of people here who love him and who love others. A church family who demonstrate that humble faith lived out. Like Timothy and Epaphroditus, we show a love for people and we show a work and passionately work for the gospel because we understand the goodness of the good news that we have. And of course, we need God's help to do this. Absolutely. This is not a venture of our own or of our own willpower. Even as we talked about a few weeks ago, even growing in Christ-likeness is not something we can conjure up in ourselves. No, it's a work of God in our hearts. God is the one who drives us to this, yes. So we need his help and he abundantly gives. And we need his forgiveness, of course, for the times that we make a mess of things or we miss the opportunity he provides us with. And he gives us that forgiveness when we come to him. Yes, we need to understand the wonder of his salvation. And we write, one way in which we regularly do that is to share in the meal that we'll take in a minute when we consider the sacrifice of Christ in our place so that our sins may be fully atoned for and therefore we can be welcomed into the family of God forever. And so may he help us as we seek to live lives that glorify him, that show his love, that, and we get opportunities to share his love, his grace and his truth. May we indeed be those who demonstrate a genuine love for people and a passionate work for the gospel. In other words, may we be people who humbly live out this wonderful faith. Let's pray for his help. Our Father, thank you for your word. And our God, we do thank you uh, that, that you, have, you have offered salvation. And Lord, many of us here know that and we praise you for it. Thank you for Jesus. As we come to to gather around the table and remember his sacrifice in our place. We thank you for him. Without him, Father, we would still be under the penalty of sin, but praise you, Father, you have provided. And so we pray that we would indeed live a life worthy of the gospel, that we would humbly live out this radical faith, that we would demonstrate a love for people, that we would be passionately working to share and show your good news. And Lord, the end result of all of that is, is your glory. The end result of that is that, that you are praised by those who hear the wonderful good news of your salvation. Lord, we pray that you'd give us help. We pray you'd give us grace. We pray you'd give us a, a deeper understanding of your glorious truth. Pray for boldness. Pray for clarity. We pray for a willingness, Lord, to lay down those things that hold us back. Would you do a work in our hearts, Father? Continue to shape us and mold us into the likeness of your Son. 
And we pray that all of that will be, as we've said, for your glory and the extension of your kingdom. Amen.